has told us a very straightforward and depressing story about Appalachia. It's a region that is being left behind as the rest of the U.S. economy chugs on. It's a destitute, hopeless place without good jobs and filled by communities in decline. The mountains and rivers may be beautiful, but there are clouds of malaise hanging over this region, causing deaths of despair and an opioid epidemic, as well as great material and spiritual poverty. In his recent report on the region, Aaron M. Wren, a senior fellow at American Reformer, a Protestant nonprofit, complicates this picture. Appalachia, Wren shows, is no monolith. It consists of a diversity of areas with their unique challenges and identities. It has a rich cultural heritage, especially in music and the arts and natural beauty. And while it faces its share of problems, it has tremendous opportunities for growth and several trends working in its favor. Today, Brent speaks with Wren about this much maligned region, offering an insightful perspective on a region that has a crucial role to play in boosting social mobility for millions of Americans. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Aaron Wren, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great. This is our maybe our third encounter. Uh, you came to uh, AEI uh, in March to take part in a Appalachia Policy Summit, uh, and that was great. And then we ran into each other a couple of weeks ago out in Indianapolis and uh, enjoyed your talk there. So I wanted to get you on to the podcast just to talk about some of your recent research um, on Appalachia and the economic status of the region, which um, I think you've just published a report on this, and it's great, and we'll include all the links to that material. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about you. I'm interested in how Aaron Wren became Aaron Wren. Uh, and what drives your interest, uh, and particularly like looking back over your career development, if you were asked to write up an article on your own vocational development, where do you see the seeds being planted early in terms of your interests, and then who helped to nurture those along over your life? Sure. Well, I grew up in rural southern Indiana, so I was a little disconnected from the world at large. We didn't have the internet back then. Went off to college at Indiana University and then got a job in Chicago at the company that's now known as Accenture. So had a career in management consulting that spanned, you know, 15 plus years. Uh, And that was extraordinarily formative to me uh, personally and professionally, obviously. Moving to Chicago was quite a change. And then I gained tremendous skills working in the consulting world. Then I made career change number one where I sort of reinvented myself as an urban policy analyst and sort of commentator, which is the roots of this Appalachia study, which was put out by the Urban Reform Institute. And I got interested in cities, again, coming from small-town Indiana, rural Indiana, moving to Chicago, fell in love with the cities. Someone said, Aaron, you love cities like only someone from a town of 29 (laughs) people can. So I uh, was very interested in uh, the city and, and particularly the overlooked cities. So I got very interested in you know the Midwest, which I really thought didn't get a lot of love uh, from the coasts. And I wanted us to have a voice in that conversation. But essentially, it was just applying the tools, techniques, and disciplines of management consulting to the problem of the city. So what's what's uh, only what, I was I was the client. What's the educational pathway on the management consulting? Uh, what what did you where did you study? What did you study? Well, I, I only have an undergraduate degree, so uh, I had a degree in business. Uh, it was really with a finance concentration uh, there, uh, but also sort of independently, I taught myself software development. I actually turned out to be a very good software developer, uh, and that has really, you know, obviously helped me. Accenture is a very technology-oriented company, so a lot of what we did was work uh, on technology solutions for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so having that technology skill has definitely um, been a benefit to me all along. I see every skill that I've learned as essentially cumulative. Mm. Uh, you, you know, I, you add new things to the stack and you can combine them in new and interesting ways. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of formal training uh, on a lot of things. Again, I, I only have an undergraduate degree. If I were 20 years younger, I might go do a PhD. But one of the things I view, just as um, journalists, you often hear Matthew Iglesias, you know, when he's critiqued by academics, he says, look, 
I'm not an academic. Academic skill is valuable, but journalism is also a mm -hmm. skill. And so I feel like there is a sense in which what I do is also a skill in its own right. Mm -hmm. That sort of consulting uh, slash journalism perspective on things, creating frameworks that help people make sense of the world uh, is very is, is very important and very powerful uh, for people. So, you know, but a lot of it was sort of just, you know, my experiences there. So I went into kind of uh, the urban policy world, which I still do a little bit of public policy work, hence this uh, this study that I did. But a few years back, I also sort of did a career change number two, a little bit to go upstream of some of the economic and, and policy challenges, sort of focused uh, actually, a lot of it was focused on the men's issues, uh, which have been in the press a lot. But I started working on that, uh, you know, a decade mm. ago, sort of studying it as I saw the rise of online influencers uh, drawing these men while sort of traditional institutions and authorities did not. And particularly sort of the church, like why men don't go to church was always this old uh, sort of question people ask. And so it sort of got me interested in sort of uh, call it cultural critique and, and analysis really focused on sort of the intersection of men's issues and the future of the evangelical church in America. So I've you know been spending um, a lot of time working on that. That's really the, primarily what I do. But people still call me uh, about the city stuff. Uh, yeah, you know, even though I've sort of uh, you know a little bit deprioritized that. Uh, but again, it's it sort of builds mm -hmm. on everything mm -hmm. that I've learned, and it's sort of it's sort of an extension into new domains. And I think one of the things, and this is one of the things I think consultants are very good at, rather than being like a deep technical expert in one field, uh, we sort of integrate across all the domains. Uh, it, it's very, it, it's very, it's broader rather than deep, although we go deep in some areas. And when I started looking at the problem of the city, I saw immediately that kind of urban discussions are very dominated by sort of over-specialized uh, technical practitioners. So urban planners design zoning codes. Architects design buildings. Civil engineers design roads, right? People who are specialized in education go into teaching. There's like public health. So these are all very important kind of technical domains in which you have to have a lot of technical expertise to go in them, but they're also silos. Mm -hmm. And so who's looking across the silos? Mm -hmm. And there really weren't a lot of people looking at that. So that's sort of what I have always done is try to make the connections across uh, across these domains. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, it's completely consistent with the way I think about it, too. I, I have just an undergraduate degree and then 30 years of the School of Hard Knocks uh, in public policy to, you know, that informs my, you know, the way that I think about uh, all the issues that, that we're grappling with. And and I love the, uh, I love the de-siloing uh, aspect of what you know my in a sense my limitation you know without the technical skills associated with a PhD I'm not I, I'm not burdened in some ways by those limitations and and uh, the ability to kind of take a broader view so that's that's really interesting uh, I always yeah. find it interesting when people only have an undergraduate degree you know Walter Russell Mead only mm -hmm. has an undergraduate degree mm -hmm. And people just assume he must have like some right. PhD in history or international relations or something, but he actually doesn't. Especially since I came to AEI, people constantly call me doctor, and I'm just like, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, I I can't cure any of your diseases, and I can't, and exactly. I uh, and I and I can't even diagnose your social science problems through using data. Uh, I have to rely on other people, you know, who who can gather and analyze a lot of that, and then help those people connect their research to the the narrative problems that I see, you know, um, much like you're, you know, when you were talking about the challenges that are facing men, which is something I hope we get a chance to talk about uh, in this discussion about Appalachia. Um, okay, so who, uh, just real quickly, are you a man without a belly button or did somebody actually like... <laughs> help you along the way to to um, reach your uh, to where you are right now in terms of your career? Yeah, we could spend a long time talking about that. But one person I would just highlight uh, that's uh, been a great help to me over the years is Joel Kotkin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's conveniently, for the purposes of our discussion, the founder and executive director of the Urban Reform Institute in Houston. So it's a think tank that he set up, again, to sort of look at 
uh, a little bit fly over America. I don't know if you'd say that was his. Uh, his yeah, there's, it's yeah, hard. But, we don't really have a good vocabulary for this. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I, I get you. But, he, but yeah. he sort of gives the minority report on some of these things. And so, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I always say that in addition to my, my pastor, I also have a rabbi, and that's Rabbi Joel yeah. Kotkin, uh, who, you know, has uh, opened some doors for me over the years. So he introduced me to Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Uh, and ended up writing a number of articles for City Journal that did extremely well for them that led me to to work at the Manhattan Institute four or five years in New York, which is a great experience. And so, you know, in essence, a lot of my uh, opportunities that I got in this field are as a result of Joel, um, you know, being willing to help me out. Mm -hmm. And I always look at people uh, who are sort of like above me and sort of like, you know, audience reach or status or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And I kind of divide them into two categories. You know, there's people who take a pay it forward attitude where they sort of like help people under them. And then there's ones that are exclusively like networking up. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so uh, Joel is definitely one of the people who's willing to to help other people. Now, again, it's not like he's just totally selfless. He's also getting benefits out of it himself. I wrote this article uh, for that. Uh, but he doesn't just take this purely transactional point of view mm-hmm. with people and is very open to saying, hey, here's somebody with something to say. Let's put him up. And so, I, you know, uh, I definitely say that's one of the great divides in how you, you, you can look. One of, the, one of the consulting frameworks right. that you can use to, to, to look at people. Uh, and uh, so I, I benefited, uh, I've benefited a lot from him uh, uh, over the years. And he's very insightful. And he has, uh, you know, he's got his finger on the pulse of a lot of things. Unlike a lot of uh, people, uh, he traditionally uh, would fly around the country. He would spend a lot of time out in the field talking to people. Uh, and I think he's from a journalism background himself. And so he's got that sort of um, sort of perspective on it. And so he, he picks up things other people don't necessarily pick up when they just sit in their office in uh, D.C. You know? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. I, uh, that curiosity uh, about the world is so important. Um and I think uh, just in terms of, you know, you were talking about this relationship between self-interest and other interest uh, and uh, properly understood, those are the same things, you know, that we are interested in other people and what they do. Uh, and we have a uh, an opportunity. I, I often think of it as an obligation to then, you know, as we receive we're also giving um, back to the people that we're um, that we're interacting with. So, uh, and it, and it's you know, a a essential to our survival, yeah. right? We have to have that. Um, we we are self interested, but we are also very much other interested. Uh, one of my friends from Chicago uh, always talks about the difference between closed networks and open networks. He says one of the problems with Chicago is that it's a closed mm-hmm. network. Uh, there's a great uh, book about the old Chicago machine, maybe the greatest book ever written on uh, Chicago politics. It's actually a, a group of, it's, it's reminiscence of different people about that era. And it's called, We Don't Want Nobody, <laughs> Nobody Sent. Right. And yeah. I, just, uh, I, just, I just love that. And, you know, he, he makes this point, yeah. uh, Jeff, Jeff Carter, he's a venture capitalist and former uh, uh, trader uh, at, at the Board of Trade or the Merck. I can't remember which one he was at, but he was a floor trader, uh, he had, you know, in the pits. And he he points out that with the open network, like Silicon Valley being an open network, the more you, you know, it's, it's a give to get. You got to give before you get, and you give because that everything that you give increases the value of the mm-hmm. network. And so, if you're part of this mm-hmm. network, then growing the value of the network. Think about Metcalf's law or all those different things that talk about the power of networks. You know, it, you're contributing to the value of something that then is ultimately going to rebound to you in some level. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, you know, I, there are like certain, that. I think sort of evil geniuses figure out how to be completely self-interested and prosper. But uh, I think that for most of us, uh, that's that that strategy doesn't work. Um, you know, we've got to uh, engage people in a way that lets them know uh, that we are trustworthy and that we uh, are not completely self-motivated <laughs> Uh, and uh, have something of their interests in mind as well as our own. So that's terrific. And that's a great story about Joel. uh, And we will include a link to uh, his think tank and some of his work uh, in the show notes so people can 
um, can look at that. He's always been a hero of mine, uh, and um, and you know a, an important thinker, uh, on, especially on the center right about what's right with our cities as well as what's wrong with our cities. The cities are important. We need to um, to value them uh, appropriately. So, okay, let's get into your report. Um, why don't you just give us uh, a little bit of background on why you wrote it, uh, what, what the impetus was, and then kind of what are the highlights that you want people to be um, aware of in that report? Sure. Well, you know, Joel commissioned me to write the report, uh, and I think because although I'm not uh, you know, sort of a, a scholar of Appalachia going back into the past, I had done a lot of work on these sort of overlooked, underloved places that have sort of struggled, the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. if you will. I spent a lot of time looking at the Rust Belt and sort of places that have had structural long-term issues. And so it was good to get to sort of add a little bit more of the Appalachian flair to uh, that and specifically, you know, one of the things that we were sort of chartered with doing is saying, what does remote work offer in terms of potential opportunities to Appalachia? And so I, I talk a little bit about the history uh, of the region and, and a little bit of the data on it, which I didn't want to spend too much time because other people have done that better. And I, I want to say, what are the unique contributions that I can make? And, and I think there were a couple one, uh, again, uh, and this is very much a benefit of coming from this sort of Midwest uh, perspective, was this divide between North and South Appalachia, and that essentially there's two parts of Appalachia. There's the sort of the Sun Belt Appalachia, and there's the Frost Belt Appalachia. Now, the Appalachian region, we get there's a million definitions of it. Uh, we don't need to go, in, go into all of that. Uh, you know, the Appalachian mountain range is huge. But it extends, the the federally designated Appalachian area extends from Mississippi, which actually is not in the Appalachian mountain range. That's sort of a political determination all the way up to New York State. So it's it's a vast region. And there are parts of, like, Virginia that actually are in the Appalachian mountains that aren't in it. So to some extent, the uh, federal designation is a little a little bit artificial. But, you know, basically it's what people use, and, it's, um, and I think it's broadly accurate. So uh, is well. that you could, you get is markets. that the region encompassed by the Appalachian Regional Commission? Then yeah, okay. yeah, it's four hundred and twenty-three counties. Okay. It's the region that the Appalachian Region Commission looks, and you know, again, there's part of it that's in the south, and part of it's in the north. And I put the dividing line at the northern boundary of Tennessee and North Carolina. And if you look at it, south of that boundary is where there's been tremendous population growth. You know, it's been widely known. Uh, widely noticed that basically average January temperature has been the number one predictor of population growth in America since around 1960. Uh, so the areas south of that had seen tremendous growth and the areas north of that had seen stagnation in general. And what I saw was uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of the growth in the south had been really concentrated in these sort of um, you know, major superstar cities like Atlanta or Charlotte or Nashville. But what we're starting to see is that growth is spreading out into some of these rural areas. And so much of Appalachia in the south, you know, the growth of the Sun Belt, sort of this exurbanization we've seen from the pandemic, um, you know, the, the quest for cheap land and affordable housing, all of these things were sort of regenerating South Appalachia a little bit organically in the sense that population is going up. 70% of the counties in, in South Appalachia are growing in terms of population. You know, uh, I can't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head, but quite a high percentage of them are actually growing at rates faster than the national average population growth. A lot of them are adding jobs. Uh, and so we're seeing that the marketplace, when I say organic, I mean via the market rather than via policy intervention. Uh, you know, there is there is good things happening there, whereas in the north, that has not been as much the case, simply because the northern U.S. in general has been stagnant. There really are no places in the northern U.S. that are rapidly growing. And, uh, as I like to say, only really New York City and Boston in the entire 23-state area that I call the Old North has really been able to regenerate themselves for the, for the 21st century. Uh, and so yeah, this this idea of like looking at it, we should we should we should put this Sun Belt Frost Belt overlay on top of Appalachia mm-hmm. as a way to think about and understand it. That's one that that's like a key part of uh, of my report. And then the second way was remote work, 
and what's happening with remote work in Appalachia. And, and I did kind of more look at northern Appalachia there, but really across three dimension, what I call the full-time remote worker, the person who can live anywhere they want to live, the hybrid worker who is remote part of the time but has to go to the office, say, two to three days a week, and then how remote work offers opportunities to existing residents, not just attracting newcomers, but can an existing person in Appalachia access new economic opportunities through remote work, which is sort of a, a different dimension of the problem. So I look a, a, across all three of those. Okay, so um, we could go in a number of directions at this point. Um, you, you've captured that, uh, you know, that north-south uh, distinction really, really well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about culture, and we may be able to get from that into. Uh, I'll ask you to do a little de-siloing on the fly, uh, and and talk a little bit about how uh, the idea of Appalachia. What what is the idea of Appalachia that you refer to in your report? Uh, and then, uh, uh, where do men fit in to the idea of Appalachia. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in that uh, area because uh, this is a, you know, this is a real sore spot in American society um, of the disengagement of men from work. Uh, and this is uh, an area where that is particularly acute, I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I... Uh, so talk about the idea of Appalachia and how we think about Appalachia and and then how do the people of Appalachia think about themselves and particularly men? Yeah, if you go back to the mid-century era, there was a historian, I believe his name is Henry Shapiro, who has this famous quote about Appalachia, which he described as, as something like a strange land inhabited by a peculiar people in but not of America. Mm -hmm or something like that. And his point was you go back to like the late 19th century as a large-scale industrialization took over the country. There began to have this perception that Appalachia was this um, different kind of place, that it was sort of a remnant of sort of a, a pre-industrial America, that it was sort of a backwards kind of place, was underdeveloped, uh, and, you know, it was inhabited by, you know, all these, uh, you know, Scots-Irish people who were involved in feuding and moonshining and all these other things. Uh, and, and But also that, that had a sort of purity mm. of, of, like, culture with the music and the crafts mm -hmm. and that it represented something that was a more authentic that had been lost in a lot of America. And so, you know, most people never really go to Appalachia, and if they do, they just drive through it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's some distinction. Do you call it Appalachia or do you call it Appalachia? You know, I grew up, I call it Appalachia. I still sometimes call it that. Apparently some people there actually do call it Appalachia. <laughs> it's not entirely that. But, like, just, you know, knowing, knowing the lingo, it's, and it's a little, it is sort of remote. And that's one of the things, especially uh, uh, northern uh, Appalachia. One of the things I did in the, um, uh, in the report was create a map of uh, what I called suburban and exurban areas. So the suburban counties of metro areas and then the two rings of counties beyond them for metro areas of 500,000 people or more. And I sort of said, this is the hybrid work addressability area. But it showed like very clearly that much of the heartland, what we think of, of Appalachia, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, and, you know, western Virginia mm -hmm. are, are not in those zones. They're remote mm -hmm. from cities. They're very rugged. There's like, you know, they were hard to get, you know, highways through, uh, that sort of thing. So it was a little disconnected. It was a little remote. Uh, but that, this was sort of like the stereotypes. So it created a lot of stereotypes and generalizations about uh, Appalachia, some of which were probably true, uh, some of which were not. You know, uh, J.D. Vance famously wrote, famously wrote his book, Hillbilly Elegy, talking a little bit about that. And he looked at the stereotypes. He said, if we took a look at Namir, we'd have to, uh, you know, admit that some of them were true, but some of them some of them were not true. Like this idea that this area was completely primitive, cut off, and represented a sort of pristine culture w was not true. So, for example, I cite this uh, uh, cookbook that this professor in um, in like I think it's in, in Asheville 
she found like her grandmother or her mother's cookbooks from the 30s and it like references all store-bought ingredients mm-hmm. it's like this mm-hmm. is not people like just pulling stuff out of their garden and like primitive mountain food mm-hmm. like they actually went to the grocery mm-hmm. store and bought the same things that we did mm-hmm. um so let's uh, dwell on that question of bias just for a second i wrote an essay last year called systemic disadvantage um uh, for national affairs, which was trying to connect the the kind of discrimination that uh, racial minorities experience with the kind of discrimination that non-college educated whites, many of whom we think of as being, you know, like these are the this is the the indigenous culture of Appalachia, but. There are these systemic disadvantages that uh, these populations face that are just as pervasive as the systemic disadvantages that racial minorities, particularly African Americans, have faced uh, in in American society, and yet somehow they don't count. Uh, and I'm curious if you've reflected on that. Uh, is that true that? From your perspective, do the kinds of disadvantages that the people living in these, um, I like what you use your term about unloved America, Uh, that might be a new entrant into my vocabulary for how I want to describe this, or maybe we call it beloved America, because I I do think Mm -hmm. there is a deep love embedded in the American psyche for these places. You know, it's like there's a reason that, you know, we've we have a, a series of television programs over the decades that focused on life all the way from Mayberry RFD to, you know, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies to the Dukes of Hazard. I mean, these are all they all rely on these tropes <laughs> about right. about this region. So there is kind of a deep uh, a deep love for the idea of this place, but at the same time, it seems to be a vestige of kind of um, it's okay to discriminate against it as well. Anyway, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, in terms of whether it's exactly the same as uh, you know racial discrimination, you know that's kind of beyond my my level analysis. I would say, you know, uh, there's the famous book "Seeing Like a State," and you know one of the uh, one of the principles of that is the idea that governments like to make things legible. Mm. You know, we like to assign addresses. You know, when I grew up, we were just route to Laconia, Indiana, and then they assigned street addresses. To all of our houses, I think it's, uh, I think it was for nine one one purposes. So you call nine one one, they want to know where you actually are, not that you just live on like Route Two, Laconia. So this legibility, and we've created essentially legibility around racial categories. And once you create like a you know government classification of anything, then people mobilize mm-hmm. around that, mm-hmm. you know, for you know government action or or, or other things, and. We really have never created a category that is legible to talk about Appalachia. You know, there's the Appalachian region, perhaps, um, which does have this ARC, uh, you know, region. That's why I say I use it, because it is the legibility. But in terms of sort of the the culture, the class issues, it, it is sort of, it's a geographical classification, but it's not a kind of a human classification. Mm. And so... It's hard to see, perhaps, simply because there are, there isn't a defined category for it around which we've organized, uh, you know, a lot of our. our, our but know, it's still, it, but it's still very issues. legible to us culturally, right? I mean, it's like yeah, I mean, it, it's known in, it's known in the culture, but um, you know, if if you had to answer on the census, you know, I'm of Appalachian origin. Mm. And that counted for something. Mm-hmm. Just the mere fact that you had to identify it, you know, sort of like Hispanic. You know, if you go to Latin America, there's no concept mm-hmm. of Hispanic mm-hmm. as an identity. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Mexicans and, and Argentinians do not think of themselves as the same thing. We come to America, we create a census box called Hispanic, which cuts across all the racial categories. And now all of a sudden it's like Hispanic identity exists. And so, you know, if we had a category like Hispanic that was Appalachian origin, I think it would change a, a lot of things. I mean, it's a little wonky, but I think that would change a it's lot. It's interesting. Of I mean, we, we probably have to have a, a 
uh, designation for uh, people in the Ozarks. <laughs> We'd have to have one for people in the Central Valley of California who, you know, came out of the Ozarks, uh, many of them. Uh, we'd have to have, you know, something to designate, you know, kind of the Delta region of the, of the, the Mississippi, the southern end of the Mississippi as well. I, so the, it's a uh, it's complicated because it's hard when you I guess when you're part of the majority. Right. To to right. come up with a way of talking about people that allows them to become legible in the way that you are. Right. There's also the question of whether that legibility doesn't ultimately end up hurting you. Um, yeah. So, well, it's it's really important in understanding things. You know, for example, I wrote an article for City Journal uh, several years ago about this place in Indiana, this county, Scott County, uh, that during when Pence was governor, they had a big national story because they had an HIV mm. outbreak there because people were injecting all these mm. drugs. And so I'm like, I'm going to go study this county and what happened in this county. And one of the things I discovered is that this county had been heavily settled by Appalachians, mm. uh, very heavily. So it was it was um, and, you know, the county south of it, uh, Clark County, which is where my family's from, heavily German Catholic. The county north of it, Jackson County, very heavily German Lutheran. And so the ethnic origins of these places matter. So, you know, Scott County, because it had this, um, you know, this Appalachian origin was more vulnerable to many of these issues. So we can close this out, but I do uh, this part of the conversation out. Um, but I did want to make sure that we looped back to um, this, uh, the, the particular challenges facing men. So you have that's your vocation right now is thinking about th those challenges. What did you see in your research um, related to that um, um, to related to the challenges that men face? Yeah, I, I didn't do a whole lot of analysis on that in terms. Yeah, this of, can be uh, anecdotal but, or but one of the key, yeah. You know, you know, one of the key things, and you know, you've hit on this in your research, but it was really uh, economist Ed Glazer who convinced me of of this, which is that when it comes to men, the the thing we really need to focus on is long term joblessness, not things like income inequality, because when you are a man who does not work for an extended period of time, basically every social indicator mm -hmm. that you have goes through the roof. Negative right. suicide, drugs. Uh, Physical you, you health, know, mental health. It's, Physical, yeah. It's, it's, um, uh, and so, therefore, really honing in on joblessness uh, is, is uh, important. In terms of that, not just again, not just kind of transitional. Oh, I lost my job. I need to find another one. We're talking about people who were extended mm -hmm. periods of time unemployed. And I didn't pull all the data on that in, in Appalachia, but certainly that's where a lot of those social indicators are very heavy. And that is where a lot of people have been, you know, structurally unemployed, underemployed, sort of marginally existing. And so, yeah, you know, with the, with the you know, extraction based economy and you know, coal mining kind of going into decline and not a lot of other app opportunities, um, you know, that really is, um, I think it's a huge problem in Appalachia. You know, it would be really uh, something that would be really interesting to just study in more depth, to be quite honest, and go go down there and uh, to really to really understand the culture and dig in of everything there. You have to kind of go, you know, embed mm -hmm. yourself, uh, kind of do some little ethnographic research, which I couldn't do. But, you know, you drive through Appalachia and... You just it's mostly like four lane roads mm -hmm. because they've plowed all these roads through and you can go to towns. And there, you know, there aren't necessarily a huge number of towns there in a lot of these places. But, you know, it's, it seems pretty nice. But then you get off the main road, you go back into these hollers, which are like little like I'm not even sure how two cars could pass each mm -hmm. other on these mm -hmm. roads. They just kind of wind back and you see all these, you know, dilapidated houses and burned out trailers and keep out signs and be like you can just really see the. These sort of uh, really standoffish mm. uh, thing. You just you could just feel it palpably. And I, you know, there's a lot of journalists who just love going into those <laughs> situations. And I'm like, man, I'm afraid that they're gonna, you know, because there's nothing on this road. It just dead ends up mm. the street. You know, you, you, you know, they know you're not from there when you're driving up there. And it's like, what's this yeah, person doing yeah. back here? And the truth is, generally speaking, 
there's probably nothing good that ever happens to them as a result of somebody coming mm-hmm. back there. And, you know, I've always said that uh, in, in these sort of like uh, kind of like lower income areas of the city, which I would walk around in and explore. And a lot of time people will be a little suspicious of you there. And I mean, well, you know, when usually it's, it's, you know, when people like me show up in those neighborhoods, it's not usually a good sign for them. So I can understand why they're suspicious. Is this like a real estate speculator? Is it a city? Inspector? Yeah. And or, or like even that? if they're social scientists, they're still yeah. like putting they, they these are specimens to be examined. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, that exactly. is uh, nobody likes to be put under a microscope yeah. like that. Yeah, so you, you know, I would really have to kind of embed and get to know those people and understand all the all the structural factors that underlie, uh, you know, the unemployment. But, you know, but, but this was like, and I always make this point. And this is one of my, if you want to call it a critique of J.D. Vance's book, I compare J.D. Vance's book to uh, Robert Putnam's Our Kids, and he talks about um, his town in Ohio. I don't remember the name of his town he grew up in, Port Clinton or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I think Ohio, that's right. That. You know, when he was growing up there, it was an economically thriving, socially intact community. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Appalachia, this area was never thriving. Right. This was never a high function right. uh, area. And, you know, as a result, it's not like, you know, it's not like they have this legacy of all this accumulated social capital and accumulated sort of cultural advantage that comes from having you know, not that long ago, having been, uh, you know, a socially intact, economically prosperous community, you know, maybe you've got like a community foundation with some money or you've got like some local arts organizations or, you know, the, a lot of different things you might have going for you. With, you know, in, the, in this place, they, they didn't have a lot of that. And so they can't draw on sort of these memories mm-hmm. and some of that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Well, that's very much like uh, just going back to the, you know, the um, analogy to urban poverty uh you know social capital deficits are you know front and center yeah. in terms of the challenges that those many of those communities face because it's a little hard to talk to them about the success sequence you know stay in school get a full-time job don't have kids till you get married when there's nobody around you who is modeling that that behavior or referring back to a cultural history in which that was the case uh, you know, there's no appeal to that that social capital. That's one of the ways that I think, you know, there's a commonality. Uh, there are commonalities between these communities um, that are underappreciated. Um, and so I, I, I want to, but I want to address something that you said about in the previous part of this conversation about, you know, you can see like the culture transplanted over long distances yet still having some of the same outcomes, you know, that, that people who weren't necessarily embedded in the long, for the long term in these, uh, in these places where you had a lot of social, cultural dysfunction going on, uh, and yet they're displaying the kind of the same behaviors. So we've talked about, all right, the market changed, the jobs changed, the job, in many ways, the jobs went away, uh, and yet... There also seems to be a cultural element. How do you put those uh, cultural, certain cultural markers or behaviors that also contribute to decisions not to work? Um, uh, so, how do you put? Do you agree with that? How do you? And if you do, how do you put it together? Well, I certainly think there is a sort of a cultural element to it. You know, there was very much, uh, you know, a sort of white great migration Mm. as well out of the south into these northern industrial cities. There were a lot of these sort of hillbilly neighborhoods. And that's that was J.D. Vance's people. I mean, he where he grew up is really suburban Cincinnati. Mm. It's not like he's in a remote uh, area. Uh, But you see these um, you sort of see the same issues coming up, you know, in, in these things in this sort of like low income white population back in the 60s. Uh, uh, maybe the very early 70s, when Richard Luger, the former senator, was mayor of Indianapolis, he commissioned a study on the Appalachian in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, (laughs) we have this dysfunctional group of people. Do we need to create special programs for them, just like we're being created from other people? And and the neighborhood where he was, I lived in that neighborhood, and it really was kind of Appalachian. And there was a lot of flow, Mm -hmm. still a lot of flow back and forth between, you know, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, and these neighborhoods. And so, yeah, there is, there is an element of, of a cultural issue, but because there's no racial overlay on it, it's a little more 
easy to confront and just say, yeah, some of these cultural right. things. No, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, that you could, talk more frank, right. you could talk more frankly about it, right. uh, you, you know, sort of in our society as a result of that, which is one of the things that, you yeah. know, that J.D. Vance does. Uh, well, you can't you can talk more frankly about it. But the more common response, especially among kind of the professional sociologists, cultural historian is like they kind of turn actually turn away from it because it's just like it's not worth my time to to think right. about it. So it does. It, there is a higher level of permission, I think uh, it and that can be very negative in terms of stereotyping. Uh, it could be. You know, one thing yeah. I saw when, you know, the responses to J.D. Vance's book, you know, initially it was just, you know, beloved. And then people started crit critiquing it. And there were a lot of these a academics based in Appalachia who wrote all these responses to it. And so I think a lot of the academics who were based there, they're all like hardcore mm -hmm. lefties. Mm -hmm. Right, who are probably somewhat. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna psychoanalyze here. Probably a little bit resentful that they ended up there and they didn't get up at Harvard. Right? right, and so the the leftists. You know, I I live in Indianapolis, and I see this. Like our little our urban progressives are far harder core in a lot of ways than on the Upper West Side of New York, where I used to live, because they 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 kind of feel like oh, I'm in this kind mm -hmm. of like you know second third tier mm -hmm. city. We need to prove we belong, mm -hmm. and so I think part of it is even the people who study Appalachia. Uh, have sort of like, you know, a lens that they're putting on the problem that is that is is going to be like an ideology brought mm -hmm. to bear on that rather than kind of looking at it, uh, you know, objectively. Yeah, I think will. that's right. I, I remember when I was doing the research for my systemic disadvantage essay, we ran across the story out of Cincinnati that uh, talked about housing discrimination against people at, 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 from the, uh, the, the white migration uh, into um, you know the the industrial cities of the north uh, of the of the northern tier, right? And in the, the city council eventually having to step in and pass an ordinance saying you may not discriminate on the basis of uh, sort of whether you're from Appalachia or not, and and, hmm. and rental decisions. So that you, it when it gets bad enough. Um, Sometimes there's action. Uh, this, this was back in the '70s, right. but uh, is, but anyway, it's a it's an ongoing thing that that we need to kind of work on, and it can be really hard. I mean, you're talking about hillbilly algae. I gave a copy of that to my mother, who um, grew up on the West Coast, but really the family descended from Appalachia and. Um, and moved out to the West Coast. So I thought she'd be interested in reading it. And she was very resentful toward the book. Um, she, I mean, not, she didn't rant and rave about it, but I could tell she did not approve of the book and felt like it was airing dirty laundry um, uh, right. and exposing kind of shameful things that, you know, we just don't talk about these things. Um, yeah. Right. So... It's those are. Yeah, I uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I think you look at this and you say, "Okay, what yeah. do you do?" Right, and that it becomes quite difficult uh, because there aren't necessarily like super good yeah. um, uh, answers to that. I mean, you, you, now, it doesn't affect you, men. You, you, in your study, or you, you're talking about, you know, in the market is like at least in the southern end of Appalachia, beginning to solve right solve for some of these problems well it's uh you know people are moving in again will that benefit them i mean the, one of the, the templates that i used to try to understand it was what what has happened in the mountain west particularly in a place like idaho mm -hmm. which you would have said idaho right in the 90s that was ruby ridge mm -hmm. it was the Aryan nations it was really stereo you know had extraordinarily negative brand image well now it's the second fastest growing state in the country tons of people with money are moving there it's economically booming, but is that actually benefiting the old school, you know, people from Idaho? It's not entirely clear. In fact, one of my great fears, it, Appalachia is essentially the last physically beautiful land mm. in America uh, that does not have extreme climate that you can afford. And I think there's going to be a huge, and you certainly see this in Tennessee, prices are going up a lot. I think there's, 
you know, risk that much of this land, which, you know, out of out of town land ownership, corporate land ownership's been a big thing there. And just like in the West, everybody's buying up all these huge tracts of land, all these billionaires and their ranches. And I think similar things could happen in, in Appalachia. It, it concerns me. Yeah. It, the one thing yeah. I did see that I, you know, I want to hit this, make sure yeah. I hit this one point is that I thought was hopeful was this um, this idea of how do you connect uh, local residents to remote work? Mm. Mm. And I, I found a couple companies that were doing that, and um, they're what I call brokers, in that, you know, it's not like, okay, great, I'm just some Appalachian person with no skills, um, let me, let me you know, find a job somewhere online, that's not going to happen. But these companies came in and said, look, we have these, we have talent here, it's underdeveloped, it's underrecognized, and so what we will do uh, is we will find those people and we we think can succeed and have the capabilities and the aptitudes and we're going to train them in skills and then we're basically going to also place them in mm-hmm. jobs and so these are sort of staffing agencies if you will technology staffing agencies just like you have in every big city one was called central app another was called octana they have sep- kind of separate models uh but both of them are like let's train people on salesforce technology here and it'll be essentially a low cost mm-hmm. onshore mm-hmm you know, development operation. And so uh, Central App actually is mostly uh, stay-at-home mom, so it's it's not men. But, uh, you know, a couple of these people have gotten, like, six-figure jobs, mm. uh, you know, life-transforming mm. uh, type type of employment. Uh, one person that works for Octana had been a, a former coal miner who'd done a stint of ho- homeless for a stint. Now he's working for a tuck company. And so I think there is opportunity, but it's going to take these brokers, what I call these brokers, it's going to cre- have to create infrastructure that can connect the people who live there to these opportunities and train them. What skills do they need? And uh, and again, probably also do the sales work yeah. and all that stuff that they're probably not equipped to do. Yeah, yeah, you know, especially uh, you know being geographically remote from mm-hmm. markets, not having the networks that a lot of other people have. But you know, it's it's kind of small to date. Yeah. But I do think there are possibilities there across a number of industries, and that's, and that's where where people can have employment uh, at various skill levels remotely in Appalachia, if we have people who can find them and connect. Yeah, them. and I think that that's true. It's very analogous to what I'm seeing. Uh, we've got a, a project going right now in Columbus, where they, you know, Columbus, Ohio, booming. You know, two and a half, three percent unemployment rate, uh, and massive investment coming in from the feds and Intel, and you know, you know, you know, mm-hmm. and they they really don't know where they're going to get the workers. So Goodwill Industries is going like they've sent out people to go door to door to knock on doors and to ask, are there adults not in this household not working who would like to work, and trying to sort of harvest as it were you know to to get some of these um, disconnected folks back into the workforce very similar to what you're describing you know what you're describing is harder because there's less density Um, but uh, it it's the same idea of we know there are people out there and given the chronic labor shortage that we're facing this isn't going away i don't think might Right. It might flux a little bit yep. with the recession, but it's it. We're locked into a cycle right now. Where we're just not, you know, going to have the the kind of growth in our workforce. We're going to have to figure out how to get to these people. Right. Well, one of the things, I, implications I have of that, which may be a topic of another conversation, is that this idea that corporations will boycott you over your social policy is not tenable in a country that has a systemic labor shortage <laughs> nationwide. Right. If you have labor available, yeah. they're going to have to come there to access mm-hmm. it. But I think you're right, and I think remote work uh, is is a great opportunity because I think it offers more flexibility. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you know I'm hearing is that, especially a lot of younger people, they're not super interested in working a nine to five job. You know, they would rather um, drive for Uber Eats mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Flexibility yeah. of schedule is very yeah. important to some people, yeah. and so uh, I think you know, just like a stay at home mom, like. That's somebody who's not going to be able to access traditional employment mm-hmm. very easily. Uh, and, you know, particularly as, you know, in, in Appalachia, probably not people are going to have enough skills to generate enough money to pay for childcare and all this stuff. And like, oh, can can you sort of 
create a job that is, you know, suits her needs and her life through remote work, I think, I think could be powerful. And we, we should be, we should be looking at that. Um, you know, whereas some of the things that you hear about, uh, you know, about uh, sort of like factory, well, they don't show up or they can't work well with others. Well, you know, in a remote work world, but there's some flexibility, you know, maybe you can afford to, uh, to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think, so I think there are, I think there are opportunities yeah. that are out there, but it's going to take, again, it's, it's simply, you know, we're not going to be able to impose some work requirements on food stamp benefits and like expect people to like figure out how to get a remote work job, yet, you know, doing Salesforce development. It's not going to happen. It's going to take these entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who, and I really, I really think a lot of it's going to be solved through the for-profit marketplace. These entrepreneurs who are trying to address that labor shortage issue and some of these cost issues and some of this reshoring things for a lot of stuff and say, hey, is there an opportunity to come in and take this labor force that is there, potential labor force that is latent, mm-hmm. and we're going to make some money yeah, on that. Yeah, and, and they're going to make so money, which is one of the nicest yeah. aspects of what you're describing is yeah. that these have been extractive yeah. economies forever, yeah. you know, with uh, the rest of the country coming in and taking resources out. Right. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, I'm I'm concerned that even the – uh, you know, like the renewable energy stuff is a form of extraction, um, you know, right. uh, that we're re- relying on rural America to be the platform for um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of renewable energy projects. But this is ac- what you're describing is the opposite. It's actually injecting value uh, into these communities via technology, building yes. their capacity connecting them to the rest of the country you know it's like th- this is the this is actually technology providing a rever- a way of reversing that flow um rather than always thinking of appalachia as a place where we go to get stuff and then leave um uh, leave them to their devices so well, this has been fascinating Aaron uh we could go on and on and on uh and uh I'm really looking forward to our continued collaboration around these issues. So um, more to come for the audience. Stay tuned. Uh, AEI's American Dream Initiative is really focused on uh, beloved America. Uh, You know, those parts of the country that we um, love but don't pay as much attention to as we need to. So um, we'll look forward to Uh, continuing to engage you in that conversation as well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.